Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, October 31st of 2023, where lay persons and pastors gather every week at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time from wherever they may be to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. This Sunday is November 5th, and we are working to be faithful to Lectionary Year A. Here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader. And then in this podcast, we share, question, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Sarah Mickelson, Tampa. And I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I'll read the uh, gospel lectionary for the coming Sunday and offer a few questions for you, and we'll get right into discussion. Uh, Today, we'll be reading from Matthew 23, 1 through 12, and I'm going to be using the New Revised Standard Version. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' feet. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger and move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, You are all students, and call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the word of the Lord. Well, let's dive right into the questions. Uh, And Sarah Nicholson, heads up, coming to you for the first one. How does the instruction about tying up heavy burdens and laying them on the shoulders of others instruct us in the 21st century Christian walk? But I'd also say there's an entry point on the question, which is, or is this just about the disciples and the listeners of the day? But how does the instruction about tying up heavy burdens instruct us in the 21st century Christian walk. Sarah? Well, my first thought was, do we make it more difficult than it was for ourselves to find Christ? Do we make people jump through hoops in an effort to justify or prove their affection for Christ? Um, These are all things I considered when I read your question. Susan Hyland from Emory University, the Associate Professor of New Testament, um, in her commentary on workingpreacher.org on November 5th, 2017, says, however, Jesus suggests that keeping the law without exercising mercy does not fulfill God's expectations. So when we lay down um, hoops for people to jump through, the mercy is the most important part. And especially for those of us that were allowed in with just a swath of a hand, welcome in. Um, Do we make it more difficult for other people to enter the dining room, if you will, than that? And if we do, 
we are not helping, <laughs> period. We're not helping, and and we're in jeopardy. We're jeopardizing the good, the good news. I think. Um, and so my question back to myself was: Do we do this? In what ways do we do this? What does it look like when we try to hold the law or the rule keeping above the mercy that's being offered? And and what does Jubilee look like in our time? The idea of returning, you know, if, uh, if we had a prodigal son moment, what would it look like? Um, and where might mercy mean a lawful amends? That was the other thing that was really interesting in my thinking this week, that mercy might lead us to shifting how the law is read and applied. Um, Mark Davis notes one plausible possibility for the definition of the seed of Moses has something to do with how one could see how someone with judgmental authority might refer to it as the seed of Moses in terms of delegated work, almost as if it was a job they were given to sit in judgment over the behavior and, 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 and practice of others, which I'm not comfortable with. Um, I know there's moments where we have to have wonderful and thoughtful adjudication over a course of action or fairness or equality or practice of how we do business on a day-to-day basis. But I don't know that that should be the barrier that sits between them and God. So I wonder if the situation is similar um, in more modern times when someone seeks to legislate the morality for others. By laying into a written code of law, behaviors that are acceptable, dress that's acceptable, what books can be read, what religious practices are acceptable or deemable, um, and, and what and who who might be on the outside of that fence or that line in the sand? And I'm reminded that Jesus often stands with the people on the outside instead of the people on the inside. So I'm not sure that that it helps at all to legislate who's acceptable and who's unacceptable. What practices are acceptable and unacceptable? What books are acceptable and unacceptable? It seems a very curious parallel to someone in powerful positions questioning the faith of others when there's simply a difference of opinion. Opinion about politics or patriotism or how you dress or a choice of spouse, maybe the race or, or any number of cultural subjects that the, the division could be drawn over. It makes me think about what idol we might be clinging to. This holds a warning for for those of us who lead and, and teach in churches. What happens when we, when those like us, when we're given honor and respect and hold to an interpretation that falls short of this mercy that God offers us and it somehow limits God and God's love and the grace being offered by Christ. I think that's when we've overstepped our opportunity and have dived straight into authoritarianism, if you will. I think it's dangerous. So um, I'm, I'm cautious and I'm thoughtful about who I'm putting ahead of God. That's what I got, Don.
Thank you, Sarah. Bill Hall, your thoughts? Something that caught my attention for the first time this year with this passage, we have for a number of weeks been listening to Jesus's focused interchanges with the religious leaders. Now Jesus pivots. The, the religious leaders are still in the picture, but the focus is on his disciples and those listening. And I will reiterate this in comments about the other questions you have, Don. I think that's very important. And hopefully we only need to say this briefly. This is not a passage that says that all religious leaders are missing the mark. It is not a condemnation of all Pharisees and scribes and other religious leaders in that day nor now. Um, And it is certainly not, as it has been tragically used at times, uh, offering any support for any form of anti-Semitism. That is not the case. Um, We're living in a tragic time where some leaders are helpfully reminding us that a terrorist group does not represent their whole population. So that's important. Um, And Jesus is saying uh, that the greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humble, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. There's a word of judgment in that. But I want to focus more on the positive in that, that seeking not to burden people but to help them lift their load is God's work on earth. Um, And this is not the only place that Jesus uh, stresses that. Um, There are other places where Jesus talks about um, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, Matthew 20, chapter 20, verse 26. And this message is reflected in uh, Mark and Luke, the ninth chapter of Mark, the 14th chapter of Luke, uh, almost verbatim the the same message. So um, it it's a reminder that what what I've wrestled with is there are obvious ways to tie up her heavy burdens and lay them on the shoulders of others. And Sarah, the the examples you gave uh, are apropos. But I am wondering, and I haven't come up with an answer. How might I, in a subtle way, add to the burden of others rather than help them lift it? Um, Maybe in the tone of voice or whom I pay attention to and whom I know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm rumbling with that because, again, the core insight is the focus is now on us. We are the modern-day crowd, the disciples. Thank you for the question, Don, though I'm still puzzled <laughs> where I'm to go with it. Well, thank you, Bill. And, you know, that's why I have that secondary question, too, which is, you know, is this at all? So you have to go to the first gate. We could all go, no, it's not. It's about what's going on there, and then we can move on to the next questions. I think we're all saying, yes, this is something we're supposed to meditate on. 
going forward. And if you're, uh, if the listeners are facilitating a class, moderating a discussion forward, I think, uh, you know, just even discussing about the tactile, the nature of gravity is a good reminder of what this is about to take some time uh, to consider what it is to bind things up and what it feels like to have a burden and what gravity does to the muscles and the bones and the cartilage. And I may just do that uh, just as an opening act so that we can get positioned to understand what that burden is, which could be an emotional burden, a psychological burden, a heavy burden, whatever it may be. I think that might be a good point. Bill, I'm with you. He turns to the crowd and Sarah and I both have a background in theater and it's that it's that moment. It's a point where the director actually spends a lot of time where, you know, it doesn't take much in a scene for the focus to change. You know, and I we're looking at each other on Zoom. Our listeners really don't see the Zoom, but I'm now turning my head from one side and go, and you. You know, if you're sitting at a table on a stage and you turn your head and go, as for you, and you, you know, that that's a moment. And so this is this this is opening with that. He turns to the crowd, and I think that's where it, it opens up for me that yes, this is something we can discuss and we should discuss in the twenty first century. As for you, who me? <laughs> who me? And and turns to the crowd and I think uh there's a broadcasting of this concept, throwing it out there for everybody to consider. Because this is the business of life. This is everywhere. Everywhere. And I think we're not dismissed from having those behaviors ourselves. <laughs> you could play any role you want to here. But I think there is a burden shifting here, too. That's what I want to put on the table with this. There's a burden shifting. As he turns his head, to be ever so gracefully, the Christ turns the head and now says, that's for you. There is a call, I think, for discernment here. You know, he's not just blasting people that are, you know, in love with power, but he, he's saying you've got a role here. You've got to be discerning. I'm saying you don't have to be there. You don't have to put on the load, but you've got to be. You have the burden to connect what's going on to this ministry, and there is a call for self and situation assessment. Wow! And if you're unable to do it, then we have to help each other. And that's all over the Gospel of Matthew, because it may be like, I'm, I've got so much weight, I can't even think clearly. Good, we're going to help each other. But when you can, you have a responsibility here, too. And I feel, Bill, you're saying this some new things here. I'm feeling the weight of that responsibility to be situationally aware. That's quite a burden in its own way, but it's the burden, it's the yoke of Christ, which I want to read in a second, too. Uh, so start with the tactile nature of this, and then it's like, what are we being asked to do? And I think it's a lot. We're asked to turn our heads away from what's magnetic or a tradition. I also want to highlight that I think Jesus is addressing the intentional and the assumed. So for for someone that's behaving the way he's talking about uh, to put burdens on people, sometimes that's intentional. But sometimes it's also just cultural. I mean, this, things have been going on a long time, and we accept burdens and we place burdens on people because that's what you do, and that's no longer okay, and that requires a situational awareness as, as well. So I think what he's putting on the folks he's turning his head towards is to say something like, you know, something that's actually in the American democracy where we found the ethic come through, says who? 
I mean, there's a boldness he's asking for here, I think, in self-awareness. Really? Says who? That will break my bones? That will tear my muscles? That is not healthy. And what it comes down to is it ain't healthy. It ain't healthy for living. It ain't healthy for thinking, walking, caring. These are burdens that are a distraction. This is not the business of the gospel at all. This is not the business of life. Really? Says who? Says Jesus. Says you? Uh, says, and, and that we should not be willing in our own discernment to carry. Wow. I mean, I'm just feeling the burden this time. No, I will not. I have another yoke that I must place on me. So I think, I think that's especially important that that the the awareness of the unhealthiness of this, the distractions that this places in terms of the gospel. And I'm just going to take a minute and read from that part of Matthew. And I'm I'm doing this comfortably because in in Matthew, uh, if you go to 11, 1130 especially, we're going to, we see the counter truth, the counterpoint here. All, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take upon my, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will, take, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, Bill, let's go on to the second question. How do you process or activate the concept of one teacher and one instructor when we live in a church community that needs teachers, researchers, pastors, etc., and emphasizes Christian discernment where we need help? There's a little bit in this passage as well. So just as a reminder for everybody listening, the, the passage ends with uh, a description of, you know, there's one father. Uh, you have one instructor, uh, the Messiah. You have one Father that's in heaven. So, Bill, how do you act, how do you process or activate that concept when we actually do live in a community that needs teachers, researchers, pastors, etc.? Bill, right. Uh, when I first saw your question, I thought, how can I speak to that? I'm in the Protestant Church ordained. <laughs> I have the title of Reverend. Am I? Uh, violating scripture Um, a couple of comments this list of statements is made in a particular context in this case it's a context of challenging strongly challenging those who see their role as spiritual leaders as being one of prestige and power rather than as a servant so one possible response, Don, is to say that Jesus is purposely using a kind of exaggeration to draw a a very sharp contrast with those. We listen to your passage. They go about, they wear larger phylacteries and longer uh, uh, fringes, and they want to, uh, uh, it's all about their attention. But on a literal level, (laughs) this says uh, not only that we shouldn't have the title, there's only one on teacher. Um, I'm quoting from the Connections Commentary, Year A, Section 3, which we're in. 
uh, a scholar named Amy Moiso says, quote, for myriad reasons, the historical church itself chose not to eschew titles and hierarchies, and in some cases, deliberately adopted titles such as father and teacher for its leadership. In the end, all of us are implicated by Jesus' words, which should be cause for corporate humility. <laughs> so this scholar acknowledges, Don, that really none of us take this literally. We, we do have teachers. We do have people uh, that we address with a title that recognizes their training or their uh, position. Now, here's where I come out, because ultimately I can't resolve this on a literal level. To me, the core issue in this whole narrative is leadership. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew, titles the portion we're reading today, the overall title is False and True Religious Leadership. The first seven verses he calls the false way, verses 8 through 12, the true way. In other words, there's a clear um, contrast. And Bruner insists that the, here I go repeating myself from question one, that the focus should not be on the then current Jewish leadership's failure, but instead that Jesus' attention and instructions are focused on his own followers. Bruner asserts that Jesus wants us to use this chapter mainly to warn and critique ourselves. We're not going to eliminate titles and words uh, of recognition that are honorific, um, not horrific, honorific. Um, and here's what my focus has been on, Don. This passage is in some ways harsh, and I think it should be. I think there are times we should call ourselves out. But the good news is that congruence between our words and our actions is possible by God's grace and presence and by our choices. None of us will be perfectly congruent, but we can move toward congruence between words and deeds, especially if our focus is not on ourselves, but on caringly serving others without regard to their status. And the style of leadership that Jesus is confronting is one that makes other people's lives more burdened and draws attention to the leader rather than serving in a way that engenders empathy and compassion. And I would say in this fractured world at this moment, there is much more self-righteousness than empathy and compassion uh, for those who are on the other side. Thanks for the question, Don. Some of the comments that, that we share with each other, because the three of us work as a team and we we chat a lot, we share, we ask questions of each other. And we were just discussing this this morning before we began report, recording the podcast, that uh, our own lostness, uh, our questioning, our, our, our searching, uh, which I hope, I believe in a good spirit, all three of us every week, 
is part of this too. That we're not we're not declaring results. We're not declaring it is finished or final. From our point of view, we're we're searching, and those questions I think are underlying part of this as well. We are seeking and uh, not declaring. And I, I was thinking, uh, uh, even though this is tough, I think the the ability to it's almost idolatry uh, to declare and to say it is finished and to sum up is a dangerous thing. When the first part of this, I, the first part of the passage is Jesus turning to the audience going, and you, <laughs> I'm, I'm acting it out, as for you for you people, you're not off the hook here in terms of this. You have discernment. You have questions to ask. This is the book of Matthew. It's filled with questions. You need to ask your questions. You need to say, says who? Says who? Uh, and I, I really feel that burden now. Instead of pointing at people, <laughs> I'm going, oh, my gosh, I have a lot of work to do. I need to hang out with my friends on the podcast and talk about where I can't figure things out or where I'm lost. Otherwise, the danger is I think I can create the laws of God, not just interpret. I think I can sit in judgment. I think I can speak for God. I feel like I can translate God. By the way, that's why the early translators were put to death. How dare you speak for God? So that it went overboard in that case. So I think uh, I think uh, that that piece that says who uh, is a big part of this. I don't want to rule out the uh, the abundance and the wealth and the security that goes along with this. I'm not, and it's not. I'm not looking. I'm not talking about the people he's being pretty rough on. But anybody that's in that position, when we have abundance and strength and purport to speak for the creator, that there's going to be a problem. And, you know, in American scripture, Mark Twain says, the offspring of riches is pride, vanity, ostentation, arrogance, and tyranny. There you go. It's in all of our hearts, that discernment, you know, what do you think? There's Jesus and Matthew. That's fine. I know you're angry. I know you've been prayed upon. But what do you think? What says you? Can you answer the question? You know, do you have the discernment? Sarah, what about you? What do you think about this? So unknown to me and unknown to my husband, he turned on a master class last night with Noam Chomsky talking about independent thinking and the ability of an individual to fight disinformation. And I was curiously cooking in the kitchen and listening from afar and riveted by the connections between this and the gospel that we're reading today. So I commend the master class to you because, well, it's it's brilliant and it's wonderful to hear. And um, for me, how I process or accept the concept of one teacher, one instructor, um, I'm going to quote Ted Lasso. Stay curious. Be full of wonder. Watch for those things that entreat your heart and invite you to to lean in, if you will. We are all students in the classroom of God, period. Um, our job is to remain teachable. I wonder if arrogance is the remnant of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And um, you know, as we sit there with that juice of that fruit all over our faces, thinking we, we are all that it is and we are all that goodness, that we are missing the major point, which is 
the only reason we have any insight at all is so that we can help other people also find a way in to the gospel, a way into the good news. Um, And I think that's our jobs as fellow travelers on this path by endeavoring to to faithfully follow Jesus, by loving God first, and loving my neighbor as myself. Those are the only real rules I have to abide by, loving God and loving my neighbor. And if I fail in either one of those, I've put myself in the position of God, and I have failed. And that's as simple as that. I, I don't know that I have all the insights in the world, but occasionally the ones that I have had have been built upon the wisdom of others. And I'm merely offering them up on a buffet for other people to to take a look at and see if it helps or it doesn't in their pursuit of God. So maybe that's the, the, the caution I'll put out there is wonder is a wonderful companion. Thank you. Well, one more question, and uh, let's see. I'll I'll comment a little bit first, and Sarah, I'll come to you, and Bill, you'll have the wrap-up. In verse 6, Jesus includes the word love as a part of the description of focus on honor and recognition. What are your thoughts on the use of love as a description and source of these behaviors? And let let me read that to you just for context. Says they love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogue. They love love. And you know, I was thinking, Sarah, it says love. It doesn't say distraction. It doesn't say obsession. It doesn't say other things. It says love. And I, I, I don't know how I'm I'm raising it as a question because I'm I'm struggling with it as as a literary device that Jesus is using. He had a lot of choices here. But he says love. And uh, I, I, I guess it's about self-importance. It's a lack of service. But the ability to self-love, the ability to love being elevated is real. If there's, an, there's a dark affirmation here that that's real love. We're able to love ourselves. We're able to love that. All that we're able to love wealth, we're able to love importance. And maybe that goes back to the fruit, too, uh, that, that you're talking about. That, that he, chooses, he chooses the word in translation as we use it, love. Uh, and I, I think for our own discernment as he goes to the crowd, and I'm struggling with this, but I, I think the danger that we're being warned about in the 21st century, and we've seen it through history, is and you can focus it on ourselves, myself, and be like the trick of saying my own elevation can help others. My own elevation could be the hand of God and, and should be celebrated. Uh, if that doesn't echo through the world today as an area where we need discernment and care, you know, the ele- you know, someone's elevation is necessary for us to thrive, succeed, win, whatever it may be. Uh, I'm standing in the crowd now going, oh, so what do I do? Says who? Says who? 
and I think we're asked to be bold when that comes up. So there's a definitely a idolatry in that selfishness. But I think there's just this reminder of the danger that this this love can do in terms of distorting and putting loads on people. Um, love is patient and kind. Love is not envious. Sarah, what do you think about the use of the word love here? I think that uh, it's a violation of the greatest commandment. Um, when we love being right more than we love mercy and the other person, um, we are ripe for this challenge. We are in the same place the Pharisees are. It seems like the use in this verse of love points to um, loving personal affirmation and power more than loving neighbor and God. The commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. The love this in this particular passage hints of idolatry. I agree with you. Um, prioritizing the self and the correct living as higher than God or neighbor. Haven't all sinned and fallen short? Are we not all in need of mercy? Um, and, and it's freely offered to all. And so we all need to stand in that place of humility and forgiveness. We are all the prodigal son. And, and we all need to be in community with others. Um, and I think that when we offer ladders and scaffolding to others, we're doing the good work. But when we kick people off the ladder and push the ladder off the house, we are not helping. And I think that that's a part of the story as well. Thank you. Bill Hall, Jesus calls it love. What says you? First of all, Sarah, thank you for that imagery of offering ladders and scaffolding. Uh, I volunteer for Habitat, and those are things that enable our work. Um, and, and, you know, instead of building a wall, uh, so you captured my attention. I just need to give myself a moment to savor that and then move on. Now, appropriately on this podcast and in other resources, the point is made that in the original Greek in which the New Testament was written, there's more than one word for love. So let's spend a moment in the weeds of Greek grammar. The word love here is not the familiar and popular agape, God's love, which is emptying and self-giving and servant-directed and greater good grounded. It is the Greek verb phileo, from which comes the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It It is translated as love, and it is here, but it specifically refers to friendship. Uh, to affection, to preferences. Don, it might be better in our modern English to say they enjoy having the place of honor. It's really not about, in this context, about love that's self-giving. It's a, a preference for being in the spotlight being on stage so that may help people that when he says they love 
that's that's their preference. And of course, Jesus represents agape love, fully self-giving. Now, I always enjoy contrast. If it's not this, if it's not loving, being the center of attention, what is it? And to refer again to the Connections con- commentary by a different scholar, Sammy Alfaro, he helpfully refers us to the third chapter of Joshua. This is after the death of Moses. The people are crossing the Red Sea. And here again, I had not noticed this before. Uh, a reminder, what Joshua says is pick one man from each of the 12 tribes. We're going to put them in front. When the Red Sea parts, I and these 12 are going to go first. We're going to demonstrate to the throngs that God can be trusted to keep the water away. And they were in, the 12 were instructed to stop in the middle to meet people halfway as they traverse through the Red Sea. And that group of 12 were the last to remove themselves from danger. I think that's a powerful story. And as I say, I had never caught that detail. That That's, Don, I think, a powerful example of servant leadership. Don't ask other people to do what you are not willing to do first. And sometimes we need to stand in the middle as a signal that we can go forward and we literally, we lead, but then we step aside and the others go through and we follow them. I, I think that is such a powerful example of servant leadership. And to quote another scholar, Greg Corey, in a Working Preacher article, um, and I'm going to end with this, and this is an exact quote from Corey's article. Matthew identifies authentic teachers as servants who seek neither promotion nor acclaim. Few of us fit that bill. End quote. Few of us fit that bill. Now, I don't take discouragement from that. I take encouragement. I can move toward greater congruence. Thank you for these questions, Don. Thank you, and thanks for bringing in the translations into this. That was very, very helpful to me. I'd like the, uh, the, the passage of time here helps me, too, if we are to look at Jesus staring at the crowd of two time, uh, they've long passed. Mortality comes into play and the change, you know, the elevation of people changes. People are fickle. And, uh, you know, to since we quoted lots of people to bring Shakespeare in, the love is the ever fix it mark. And to look at this over time, the North Star, the ever fix it mark, it is finished. God's love, which is what this, the end of the passage turns to, is quite different than the changeable times of politics and people who will, be, who will, who will pass and move on. Well, folks, uh, for folks listening in, uh, Palmasia Presbyterian Church makes this podcast possible. And they're at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A. 
Org. We always commend that site to you for great sermons, other discussions of lectionary passages, disagreements sometimes, many more questions, great music, prayers, opportunities to take communion. So check that out. And you're always welcome. And we will see you next time.